This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, the play where Shakespeare betrays his own heroine in the fifth act. It's time for Measure for Measure. Of government, the properties to unfold would seem in me to affect speech and discourse. Do you content, fair maid? It is the law, not I, condemn your brother. We must not make a scarecrow of the law. Better it were a brother died at once, than that a sister, by redeeming him, should die forever. Either you must lay down the treasures of your body to this supposed, or else to let him suffer. What would you do? (sighs) All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is Measure for Measure, in one minute. Siri, set the timer for one minute. Your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the city of Vienna. Duke Vicencio has left town, leaving the moral absolutist Angelo in charge. Angelo tries to clean up the town, which is overrun with vice, and enforces even the strictest of laws, resulting in the arrest of Claudio, a local Venetian, for premarital sex. Juliet, his fiance, is with child. At Claudio's request, Lucio runs to the nearby abbey to get Isabella, Claudio's sister, so she can plead his case. Isabella, who's about to become a nun, comes to Vienna and pleads for Claudio, only to arouse the lust of Angelo, who makes her an offer. He will release Claudio if Isabella sleeps with him. Little does anyone know, the Duke has stayed in town in disguise, and befriending Isabella learns of her plight and offers to help. Together, they help to fool Angelo into thinking Isabella has fulfilled the bargain through a bed trek, in which she is replaced in bed by Mariana, the woman Angelo was supposed to marry. When Angelo orders Claudio's execution anyway, the Duke arranges to have another man killed in his place. Eventually, the Duke confronts Angelo with his own hypocrisy, restores order to Vienna, and asks Isabella to marry him. Shakespeare doesn't let her respond, so let's assume it's a yes. Oh, and throughout the play, there are also some subplots involving the rogues of Vienna, including the aforementioned Lucio and the clown-slash-scoundrel Pompey. A bum. Shakespeare entered his dark period with this unique and often troubling play, one which just barely earns its reputation as a comedy. This is thanks largely to the cynical Pompey bum, a descendant of Sir John Falstaff, Falconbridge, and Shakespeare's other fools, and also for the hastily arranged ending, in which it appears that all's well that ends well in the state of Vienna. I say appears because the ending, when viewed through a modern lens, contains several problematic facts, most notably that justice for Mariana is only obtained thanks to a blatant case of sexual assault. Equally troubling is the fact that in the last five minutes, Shakespeare betrays his heroine. For nine-tenths of the play, Isabella is a moral rock, determined to stay true to her convictions to serve God as a nun. Faced with a random proposal by the Duke at the end, Shakespeare doesn't even give her a single line with which to respond. I like to think she turns around in disgust, exits, and, like Nora in a dollhouse, slams the door behind her. Sadly, I doubt this is the ending Shakespeare had in mind. The implication is that when Isabella is forced to choose between God's hand and the Duke's, God loses with barely a moment's pause. If this is the case, then Measure for Measure, whose major theme is the struggle to live decently in an indecent world, tells us that everyone has their price, even the admirable Isabella. Both Isabella and the Duke spend the play being the Crusaders, who manage to obtain justice for Claudio, save Mariana's honor, punish Angelo for his hypocrisy, and even force the slanderous Lucio into making an honest woman out of the unseen and spectacularly named Kate Keepdown. And yet, 
The Duke proves himself to be just as much a slave to his passions as everyone else. He proposes to Isabella in full view of everyone, putting her in the difficult position of having to refuse a man of his rank and embarrass him in public. Not that the Duke, or Shakespeare, ever gives her the chance. What muffled fellow's that? This is another prisoner that I saved who should have died when Claudio lost his head. As like almost to Claudio as himself. If he be like your brother, for his sake is he pardoned, and for your lovely sake. Give me your hand, and say you will be mine. He is my brother too. But fitter time for that. Since Isabella doesn't speak or flee the scene, what can we conclude other than that she, like the silent Viola, the end of Twelfth Night, has achieved her heart's desire? And yet, there is little justification for this conclusion. Viola has been in love with Arsino since Act 1, Scene 3, while the only thing Isabella has ever been in love with is God. For the entire play, all she wants is to return to her convent and take her vows. How are we to conclude that Isabella is happy in her choice? Either she is being compelled to marry against her wishes, or she has been permanently corrupted by her time in Vienna. It would be hardly be surprising if she had, for Shakespeare presents us with a city that is either Sodom or Gomorrah, or perhaps even both. In other words, it is rotten to its core. It is overrun by dens of vice, as represented by Mistress Overdone and the rascally Pompey bum. Meanwhile, Lucio and the soldiers crave war with Hungary just for the sake of glory. The cops are all dullards, and Angelo, left in charge of everyone, is morally bankrupt. Aeschylus is one of the few innocents in Shakespeare's Vienna. Even the Duke, who is ostensibly the show's hero, has motivations which are suspect. We have strict statutes and most biting laws. The needful bits and curbs to headstrong jades, which... For this 14 years, we have let slip. Even like an overgrown lion in a cave that goes not out to prey. Now, as fond fathers, having bound up the threatening twigs of birch, only to stick it in their children's sight for terror not to use, in time the rod becomes more mocked than feared. So our decrees dead to infliction, to themselves are dead, and liberty plucks justice by the nose. The baby beats the nurse, and quite a thwart goes all decorum. It rested in your grace to unloose this tied-up justice when you pleased, and it in you more dreadful would have seemed than in Lord Angelo. I do fear too dreadful. See, twas my fault to give the people scope. T'would be my tyranny to strike and gall them for what I bid them do. For we bid this be done when evil deeds have their permissive pass and not the punishment. The Duke is blaming himself for the state of Vienna, and rather than strike and gall them for what he let them do, he is letting Angelo play the bad cop and once more impose the laws. As I've said, these motivations are not necessarily the most believable. Harold Bloom remarks that, quote, Vincenzo's antics throughout the play make him a kind of anarchistic precursor of Iago, end quote. I'll side with Bloom on this one. I'm not entirely convinced the Duke's motivations are anything other than pure mischief.
If anything, the Duke may be trying to seek vengeance on Angelo himself, since he knows of the way Angelo betrayed Mariana. Isabella then, novice that she is, is drawn into this den of vipers, a city of crime and prostitution whose own leaders are given to duplicity to achieve their goals. Isabella remains one of my favorite of Shakespeare's heroines, at least up until the unforgivable final moments of the play. Rarely did Shakespeare give us a woman of such unique moral character. Consider the challenges she is facing. On the same day she is to take her holy orders and achieve her life's ambition to serve God, she is told that her brother has been condemned for engaging in premarital sex. For Isabella, Claudio and her cousin Juliet have certainly sinned, and yet she does not hesitate to react. Alas, what poor abilities in me to do him good. I say the power you have. My power? Alas, I doubt. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Go to Lord Angelo and let him learn to know when maidens sue, men give like gods. But when they weep and kneel, all their petitions are as freely theirs as they themselves would owe them. I'll see what I can do. But speedily? I will about it straight, no longer staying but to give the mother notice of my affair. I humbly thank you. The speed of Isabella's reaction is about more than just narrative efficiency. For Isabella, there is no question that the quality of mercy is not strained. Told that her brother is being executed for his sin, she agrees at once to rush to his aid. This certainty will return later on. Isabella has the strength of character, one which will be tested as the plot rumbles along. At first, Angelo appears to be Isabella's moral equivalent. Shakespeare juxtaposes our heroine with our villain by having their introductory scenes follow one another, and in each case we see a display of what seems to be unassailable conviction. Isabella is devoted to her brother and to God. Angelo prays at an altar too, but this altar is found in the court of law. We must not make a scarecrow of the law, setting it up to fear the birds of prey and let it keep one shape till custom make it their perch and not their terror. Aye, but yet let us be keen and rather cut a little than fall and bruise to death. I not deny the jury passing on the prisoner's life may in the sworn twelve have a thief or two guiltier than him they try. What's open made to justice, that justice seizes. What knows the laws that thieves do pass on thieves? It is very pregnant, the jewel that we find, we stoop and take it because we see it. But what we do not see, we tread upon and never think of it. You may not so extenuate his offence, for I have had such faults. But rather tell me, when I that censure him do so offend, let mine own judgment pattern out my death and nothing come impartial. Sir, he must die. In establishing Angelo as one who is unshakable in his beliefs, Shakespeare sets us up for a battle royale between him and Isabella. The scenes with Pompey Bum are often dismissed as comic interludes, but I suspect Shakespeare had something else in mind. Pompey scenes often reveal much of the corrupt world which the innocent Isabella must navigate if Claudia was ever to be saved. While there is comedy to be found in Pompey's roguish nature, these scenes are far more important than is normally assumed, since they demonstrate that Vienna is a world where justice is not easy to be had. <clears throat> now, sir, come on. What was done to Elbow's wife once more? Well, sir, there was nothing done to her once. I <laughs> beseech you, sir, ask him what this man did to my wife. I beseech your honor, ask me. Well, sir, what did this gentleman to her? I beseech you, sir, look in this gentleman's face. Good Master Froth, look upon his honour. Tis for a good purpose. Doth your honour mark his face? Aye, sir, very well. Nay, I beseech you, mark it well. 
Well, I do so. Doth your honour see any harm in his face? Why, no. I'll be supposed upon a book his face is the worst thing about him. Good then, if his face be the worst thing about him, how could Master Froth do the constable's wife any harm? How is Isabella supposed to get justice in a world such as this? By the time she arrives for her first confrontation with Angelo, we know that the deck is stacked against her. The odds of her succeeding are all too slim. Yet Isabella is not as outmatched as we have been led to believe. Claudio was right to call for her. Confronted with Angelo, she is more than able to use her own convictions to wrestle against his. Confronted with Angelo, she is more than able to use her own convictions to wrestle against his. Alas, alas, why all the souls that were were forfeit once? And he that might the vantage best have took found out the remedy. How would you be if he which is the top of judgment should but judge you as you are? Oh, think on that, and mercy then will breathe within your lips like man new made. Are you content, fair maid? It is the law, not I, condemn your brother. Were he my kinsman, brother, or my son, it should be thus with him. He must die tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, that sudden, spare him, spare him. He's not prepared for death. Even for our kitchens we kill the fowl of season. Shall we serve heaven with less respect than we do minister to our gross selves? Good, good, my lord, bethink you. Who is it that hath died for this offence? Thus many have committed it. What is Isabella's appeal for Angelo? It's too simplistic to suggest her beauty alone has tempted him. Angelo shows no signs of attraction until after Isabella begins her debate. In Isabella, Angelo sees not just a beautiful face, but also a mind on par with his own. She speaks, says Angelo, and tis such sense that my sense breeds with it. In another play, this would be the start of a romantic comedy. Angelo and Isabella might be ideally suited to one another if we were in Illyria, Arden, or any other of Shakespeare's fictional paradises. But this is Vienna, and Shakespeare is no longer interested in romance. He wants to explore the hard truth of what happens when conviction crashes headfirst into lust. When Angelo tells Isabella that she must lay down the treasures of her body in exchange for Claudio's life, Isabella is quick to protest, leading to the play's most stirring philosophical debate. Here, the would-be nun and the hypocrite match wits in a discussion that touches on law, gender, and mercy. You seemed of late to make the law a tyrant and rather prove the sliding of your brother a merriment than a vice. Oh, pardon me, my lord, it oft falls out. To have what we would have, we speak not what we mean. I something do excuse the thing I hate, for his advantage that I dearly love. We are all frail. Else let my brother die, if not a feathery, but only he, oh, and succeed thy weakness. Nay, women are frail too. I, as the glasses where they view themselves, which are as easy broke as they make forms. Women, help heaven. Men their creation mar in profiting by them, nay. Call us ten times frail, for we are soft as our complexions are, and credulous to false prints. I think it well. And from this testimony of your own sex, since I suppose we are made to be no stronger than faults may shake our frames, let me be bold. I do arrest your words. Be that you are, that is, a woman. If you be more, you're none. 
If you be one, as you are well expressed by all external warrants, show it now by putting on the destined livery. I have no tongue but one. Gentle, my lord, let me entreat you. Speak the former language. Plainly conceive, I love you. <gasps> my brother did love Juliet. And you tell me that he shall die for it. He shall not, Isabel, if you give me love. When Isabella threatens to expose Angelo, he retorts that no one will believe her because of his reputation and unsullied name. He leaves Isabella with this, delivering a wound that he believes to be fatal. And yet Isabella's reaction is to visit Claudio in jail and tell him to prepare for death. Isabella believes that Claudio would rather die than allow his sister to prostitute herself on his behalf, but this naivete is short-lived. Claudio, faced with death, begs her to sin in order to save his life. Again, Isabella is unmoved. Confronted with her own brother's amorality, she responds with rage. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. Alas, alas. Sweet sister, let me live. <sighs> what sin you do to save a brother's life, nature dispenses with the deed so far that it becomes a virtue. Oh, you beast. <sighs> oh, faithless coward. Oh, dishonest wretch. <sighs> Wilt thou be made a man out of my vice? Is that a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? What should I think? Heaven shield my mother played my father fair, for such a warped slip of wilderness ne'er issued from his blood. Take my defiance, die, perish! Might but my bending down reprieve thee from thy fate it should proceed. I'll pray a thousand prayers for thy death, no work to save thee. Nay, hear me, Isabel. Oh, fie, fie, fie! Thy sin's not accidental, but a trade. Mercy to thee will prove itself on board. Tis best that thou diest quickly! Oh, hear me, Isabella! The remainder of the play consists of Isabella, with the help of the disguised Duke, circumventing Angelo's indecent proposal and saving Claudia's life. To do this, they participate in two subterfuges. One is murder, but the other is arguably worse. To convince Angelo that Claudio has been beheaded, they provide the head of a convict already executed for his crimes. But to fool Angelo into believing he has slept with Isabella, they replace her in bed with Mariana, Angelo's betrothed. Now, the bed trick, as it is known, is a highly problematic plot device, mostly because its credence relies on two sexist assumptions. The first is that in bed, all women are the same. The second is that when it comes to lovers, men are too dumb to know the difference. Both ideas are equally abhorrent, but the bed trick becomes even more troublesome when we add in our own modern attitudes. Purposely fooling someone into making love to the wrong person isn't a comedic device in today's day and age. Rather, it's grounds for a charge of sexual assault. To be fair, it's hard to have sympathy for Angelo. He has tried to blackmail Isabella into having sex with him, and this too could be construed as sexual assault. So there is some rough justice, perhaps even a measure for measure, in having one type of sexual assault be replaced by another. However, there is also Mariana to consider. Poor Mariana, who is surely one of the saddest characters in all of Shakespeare. Affianced to Angelo, she is dropped once her brother dies at sea and takes her dowry with him. Left penniless and alone, she agrees to sleep with the man who abandoned her, just so he will marry her and save her from a life of spinsterhood. There is something so tragic about all of this that it's distressing to see the Duke and Isabella agree to use her on Claudio's behalf. It's possible to argue that this is all part of Isabella's corruption, assuming, that is, that you accept the notion that Isabella becomes corrupt as the play goes on. 
Rather than sin herself, she agrees to let Mariana do it for her. Now, the Duke argues that this is not a sin, since Angelo and Mariana were once betrothed. Isabella and God presumably have higher standards. Is allowing Mariana to sin just as bad as sinning herself? It's an intriguing ethical question, and one which Shakespeare leaves for us to ponder. He certainly never gives his characters the chance. In fact, Shakespeare has the conversation between Isabella and Mariana occur offstage, so we never get to see Mariana's reaction or Isabella's struggle with her own potential hypocrisy. To be honest, I don't accept the notion that Isabella becomes corrupt. Her journey appears to be that of a novice who gains wisdom in the ways of the world. Nothing is black and white. Context must determine what is and isn't sin. Isabella, in other words, comes of age in measure for measure, growing from a naive and sheltered waif into a woman who understands the value of compromise. But I don't believe that she would compromise herself so much as to justify the ending Shakespeare has imposed on her. I suspect he threw it in because it is what audiences of the day expected, and the unfortunate result is in Isabella in the fifth act, who feels like someone imported from another play. Actresses forced to play Isabella must find a way to chart the course from the zealous conviction that marks the first three quarters of the play to the bizarre acceptance of the Duke's marriage proposal in the final scene. Few actors could do it, certainly none that I've ever seen have managed, though I did see one production recently that gave every scene between Isabella and the Duke a flirtatious subtext so that the proposal at the end was not entirely out of left field. This difficult ending, combined with a majority of characters that are difficult to like, are the reasons why the play has struggled for popularity in the 400 years since it first premiered. Nonetheless, there are enough complexities in Measure for Measure that the play still maintains a certain fan base, especially among those who enjoy characters and stories that eschew the usual stereotypes. Complex and often ambiguous, Measure for Measure has a largely pessimistic view of humanity, the sort that we will see again in Shakespeare's future work, from Macbeth to Othello to King Lear. The oddness of the ending of For Measure, For Measure seems to indicate that Shakespeare was still struggling to find a way to reconcile the dark tones of tragedy with the optimism of comedy, a struggle he'll return to with varying success in the plays to come. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. As with many of Shakespeare's less popular works, our options for film versions of Measure for Measure are limited, with the version by the BBC being the only one that's the easiest to find. It stars Kenneth Coley as Vincenzo and Kate Nelligan as Isabella. Fun fact, according to the internet, they had a hard time finding someone to play the Duke. 31 actors, including Sir Alec Obi-Wan Kenobi Guinness, turned down the part. Coley does a fine job with his role, and this version is not without its moments. Shakespeare's plays always bounce around in space, but rarely has the setting been as varied as it is in Measure for Measure. Here we bounce from a brothel resembling something out of the Wild West, to a torture chamber dungeon, to the austerity of Angelo's office. The BBC production directed by Desmond Davis makes much of these varied scenes, which helps bring the corrupt Vienna to life. The world that Isabel enters is presented as something stark and frightening, which adds to the tension of her circumstances. The pacing of this uh, televised movie is slow, but beggars can't really be choosers. The scarcity of available filmed productions of this complicated play means that the BBC is probably your only option. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, one of Shakespeare's greatest villains gets his time in the spotlight. It's the tragedy of Othello, or as I like to call it, that play about Iago. 
Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. For more information about me or all the episodes of this show, you can check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. You can find all the episodes of Shakespeare on Bard, as well as information about how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Please buy it, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. 25 plays down, 13 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>